But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an ax against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you and that you may live long. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well with you. The word of the Lord. Please join with me in prayer. Father, once again, we turn to you, um, remembering that you are a God who is generous, and that in your generosity, not only do you speak to us, but you give us your spirit to help us to hear. And Lord, your words are life. We need to hear you speak to us. So we pray now that in this time, um, you would help us, help our attentions, help our heart, help me to speak clearly and faithfully, uh, that you would strengthen us, your church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So how do we live well? How, how, do, we, how do we live in a way that we know is good and is wise and is right? It's a question, of course, that is incredibly practical. It's one that we're asking all the time without necessarily even being able to voice it. And also, it's a question that's hard. It can so often feel like the decisions we have to make throughout the day, throughout our lives, are murky, are gray. And what we've been saying since January is that when we have a proper understanding of this middle section of Deuteronomy, when we understand how these instructions, these commands are meant to work, they actually paint for us a picture of the life that we are called to. They, if you will, give us a vision of that life of righteousness viewed through the lens of Christ. It helps to say this is the way that is good. This is how you live in a way that is right. This morning, as you might have noticed, we're looking at some of those instructions that are specifically related to creation. What does it look like for us as the people of God to relate rightly to this world around us? And I, and I want to suggest that if we understand what Deuteronomy is doing, and not only Deuteronomy, but it becomes almost like a lens throughout the rest of Scripture, it gives us a way of seeing this world rightly. 
And so most of our time this morning, I actually just want to look and see and understand what we see when we look at creation around us. And then near the very end, I'll ask the question, okay, so what does that mean? What do we do about this? But most of the time, I'll be spending just thinking about what this shows us about how we see. So three things I want us to see about creation through the the lenses of Scripture. First is that creation is an extraordinary gift to us. So um, the very first of these passages, um, you know, it says, the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, and it's described. But notice how it describes God's relationship to the land. It says, it's a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Do you hear a sense of investment, of of care, of love? God loves that land. And this isn't the first time in Scripture we see God's relationship to creation. Um, If you're familiar with the opening chapters of Genesis, you'll know that again and again, as, as God speaks the world into existence, you kind of have this sense that these moments he just kind of pauses and steps back and looks at it and says, this is good. So it first appears when he divides the water from the land, and as he's seeing the, the ocean waves for the first time crash upon the beach and the towering mountains beyond, he says, this is good. It happens again when, when it talks about God making the moon and the sun and the stars, all of these billions of balls of nuclear explosions spreading throughout the universe, some of them at times collapsing upon themselves in supernova and then spreading into these gaseous star clouds that are light years bigger than our solar system called, called nebula. And God looks at this and stands above this enormous, beyond our mind ability, expanse of space. And he looks at it and he says, this is good. It happens again when it speaks of, of God causing the plants to, to come out of the land. The, the wild blueberry bushes, the the towering redwoods more than 100 yards high. Do you know that some of the redwoods that are existing in California now were hundreds of years old when Jesus walked this earth? They're ancient. And God looks at this complexity and he says, this is good. It happens again when it speaks of God filling the world with, with birds and with fish, with the peregrine falcon that is able to fly more than 200 miles an hour when it is diving. Or, or the ruby-throated hummingbird that can flap its wings 50 times in a second. Or the blue whale, which not only is big, but is loud. Do you realize when it makes its call, it's louder than a jet engine? It can be heard more than a thousand miles away in the ocean. And God looks at all of that and he says, this is good. And then again, when he makes the animals, the sleepy sloth, the the ferocious grizzly bear, the platypus. I, mean, I think he had to be smiling when he was making the platypus. He's like, let's make the semi-aquatic animal that is furry, that lays eggs, but it's a mammal, and that has a bill, but it's poisonous, and let's see what the scientists say about this one. And, and he looks at it all, and he says, this is good. In fact, after then, he makes us, in some ways, the apex of his creation. He steps back and he says, this is very good. 
There is pride. There is joy that God takes in His creation. And it doesn't just stop there. This is not some deistic picture where God makes this wonderful clock and steps away. If you ever spend time in Psalm 104, it is this this hymn that sings of God's ongoing attention day and night to his creation. He is likened in some ways to a gardener who is making sure each one of his trees is watered appropriately. It's like he's a zookeeper who looks at each one of the animals and, and he makes sure he feeds them so that they have plenty. God, God delights in this creation. I was trying to think about how, what's, what's our best way of understanding in some ways God's relationship to the world around us, and the closest thing I could think of was, was something similar to how we relate to our pets. If you've known me for a while, you know that until very recently, I did not get the whole pet thing. The man's best friend did not make sense to me. Puppies did not somehow just like warm my heart. And then we got Emmy. Emmy is our two-year-old Australian Labradoodle, brown, about 25 pounds. She's awesome. And, and, and I get it. Um, and because I like to analyze everything, don't judge, that's who I am. I've been trying to figure out, what is it? What is it about pets that are so great? I mean, it's honestly, they're a ton of work, right? I mean, like, especially when they're puppies and you always have to walk walk them and clean up after them and feed them and train them. And sometimes they're sick and sometimes they're bad and you have to clean up after them again. And it's not like they're practical. Like, I mean, they can't help you with homework. Like, they, they don't usually provide some sort of financial benefit by doing work on your behalf. They're not good conversation partners. But that's not really the point, is it? There, there is something about a connection with another living creature where there's a kind of harmony where we kind of can invest our love and they can respond in receptivity and enjoy us. That's just good. Our, our dog, and I know this is probably a common dog thing, but Emmy is unique. She's greater than all other dogs. But anyway, our dog, she um, sometimes will just like have this tennis ball in her mouth looking expectantly. She'll just like walk around with it. And like if we're sitting down, she thinks we haven't gotten the hint. So she starts kind of like bonking her head with the tennis ball against our leg until we finally realize it. And so one time, just because I was feeling a little mischievous, I found another ball and I decided to see what would happen. So I threw a different ball while she had one in her mouth and she looked at it and she started chasing after it and then she suddenly realized she didn't know what to do so she dropped one ball, gathered the other, then she saw that ball and she, and so she was like moving, it, looked, it was like a 10 minute adventure for her and finally she figured out how to corral both into the rug and she was satisfied. And here's the thing, I know every single one of you who has a cat or a dog has some kinds of stories like that. And, and the reason we take delight is, is nothing else but the fact that they are alive. And they are creatures. And there's a kind of harmony we experience with them. And it's good. And I want to suggest to you that God, who sees every single animal and every single plant and is attentive to all these things and is watching over them, that is how his attitude is towards this whole world. He delights in this. And then what happens? He creates humanity. And he says, here. Be fruitful and multiply and fill this world and rule over it. And do you understand what an extraordinary gift this God who so, so loves this world is given to us? 
I mean, we can think of extraordinary parts of this world. We can think of the, the massive, awesome Rocky Mountains or the awe-inspiring Grand Canyon. But, but to think about the gift, we don't even need to go that far. Just think about walking through a forest preserve, maybe Fullersburg Woods, and there's the water of the Salt Creek just kind of quietly going along, hiding who knows what creatures. One time when I was walking there, I saw a little beaver just kind of swimming and doing his own thing. And, and then if you just stop, I mean, I, I guarantee if you look at a single tree, a tree that has patiently been there year after year for decades, you could spend 45 minutes and still be finding new things about the, the, the ex, you know, exquisite, like the bark and the leaves and the animals in it. There is so much there, and we have been given so so much. And we've been given a calling. It's, we sometimes think about possessing the image of God, but there's a sense that the image of God actually is, is a calling. What we're meant to be doing as God's image is to reflect God to the world around us. With the way that we treat the world, we're supposed to show His love and His care and, and kind of bring, bring about His goodness in this world. That's how Adam and Eve started. Like they were in the Garden of Eden and they said they were put in the Garden of Eden to serve and to protect it. And as I understand it, the idea was that as they did this, they were supposed to expand. That as, as, as children were born and grew up, they could kind of keep going and explore and discover this world and not keep it just exactly the way it was. I mean, Deuteronomy says... The land that I've given you is filled with copper and iron, implying that there are things that are to be used. So this world is to be used and enjoyed, but in a way where there is harmony, where it is caring for the world, where the world in some ways is supposed to become even more beautiful as we, as we show God's love towards it. This is, this is how things were, were meant to be. This is this extraordinary calling that we've been given. We have been given this, this gift to care for this world that God so, so deeply loves. So that's the first thing I think we're meant to see here, that, that we've been given an extraordinary gift. But the second reality that just, I think, immediately occurs to us is that when we look at creation, we don't just see an extraordinary gift. We see our tremendous failure. I mean, we can see it in the bulletin cover. We, we, can, we can think about... We can think about all of the things that in Psalm 104 celebrates about God's care and how, how in each one of those we think about what, what we have done. So Psalm 104 says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. And, and if you know much about how farming has gone, you know that a lot of the practices to try to make things more efficient and quick have caused billions of tons of topsoil. Topsoil that takes 500 to 1,000 years just to develop an inch. Billions of tons now have been lost into the ocean. Or we read about the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted, and then the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees, and yet we hear stories of, of massive ancient forests being chopped down for biofuel and, and for cattle, and as a result, birds being made extinct because they no longer have a place to live. Or we hear, here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures. There goes Leviathan, another word for a whale, which, which you formed to play in it. And then we hear of, of how the oceans are being overfished, and so there's less than 50% of the fish in the oceans than there used to be. I don't know about you, but like, 
at a certain point when I hear stuff like this, I just almost kind of emotionally shut off. Because, because there seems to be just all around us, whether we want to talk about strip mining or whether we want to talk about landfills or the things we've mentioned, so, so, so many evidences that this world is not how it's supposed to be, that our relationship with the world is not how it's supposed to be, that, that we were meant to be caretakers working in harmony, and yet we are now exploiting it. And I would suggest to you that when we're thinking about this failure, it is wrong for us to just kind of like move it to some sort of political policy, some sort of economic policy. It's not that those are insignificant, but they're not at the heart of it. The heart of it is that the world was given to us as an expression of a relationship. I mean, if you think about it, there is a sense where every day we were meant to experience this world and experience gratitude and just be reminded again of how much God loves us. And every day as we serve this world and care for it, we can express our love and show how much we love God by caring for something that's so special to Him. That's how it was meant. And so the moment that that relationship broke, then our relationship with creation broke as well. And, and no longer did we see creation as this this sacred gift, an expression of our relationship with God, but we desecrated it, treating it as nothing more than a thing, a thing to exploit, a thing to use and to use up. Again, I think sometimes we can get so barraged by all of the information that it's easy for us to shut down, but I just want us to just at least acknowledge this reality that when we look at the world, we see our sin. When we look at the world, we see our collective failure. So when we see creation, we see a tremendous gift. We see an extraordinary gift. We see our tremendous failure. But there's a third piece that we also see looking through the eyes of Deuteronomy that I want us to recognize, and that is when we're looking at creation, we are looking at a world that is going to be redeemed. And so though we might move from gratitude to grief, we also have reason for hope. So, of these lists of uh, verses, I want us to kind of notice the, the last one, which we've already read before. You might think that I forgot, but yes, I know. We looked at Deuteronomy 5 another time, but, but hear this Sabbath command again. Now, let me just remind you, the Sabbath command we said before is not just a rule about taking a day off. It is a spiritual practice designed to give hope. Because at the end of every week, God's people would, would kind of rest and remember this is what God made us for. He intended for us, before we broke everything for sin, we, He intended for us to experience this kind of rightness, this rest, this harmony with the world, and He is committing one day to give it to us again. Every week, the Sabbath was reminding of where God is taking things. And do you notice who is supposed to celebrate the Sabbath? So it says, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, so far not surprising, or your male servant or your female servant, which we talked about before, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock. Do you hear that? The animals are supposed to rest. And, and here's why that's important. What God is teaching his people as they have this spiritual practice Every week, they are meant to recognize that this final time when God has made everything right, it's not going to just be for us. He's going to make this world right. The rest that we're designed for is also the rest that our ox and our donkey are designed for. He is going to redeem not just us, but all 
of creation. This is a theme that is repeated throughout Scripture, especially we see it in the prophets. Again and again, when the prophets look beyond the time where everything is dark to the time where things are made right, you have all of these images of creation being made beautiful. One of my favorite is in Isaiah, when Isaiah anticipates this king who is going to redeem the world in his wisdom. It, it says of him that when he rules, the wolf shall lie down with a lamb and the leopard with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. To hear that, that, that's a picture of a broken relationship with the world being made right, of a broken world being made whole through the king that is coming. And then we get to Romans 8. So Romans 8 says something Something significant that I think speaks to what we were saying before. It talks about creation groans. Creation groans because it's not how it's supposed to be, Paul tells us. It is subject to futility and corruption. It is groaning because it is under the dominion of sinful people who do not recognize what it should be. And so it is being destroyed. That's what the groaning of creation we're supposed to hear. Rather than creation that is singing for the glory of God, it is groaning under our dominion. But that's not the only thing that Romans 8 says. It also says, and it is waiting. It is waiting with eager longing. Creation is waiting with eager longing for a day that it will be set free from its corruption and its futility. And Paul says, and here's when that will happen, when the glorious children of God are revealed. When the glorious children of God are revealed, creation will no longer groan, but will celebrate as it's made whole. Here's, here's what he's saying. When, when Jesus died and rose again, he didn't just save us from hell. He didn't just bring about forgiveness. When Jesus died and rode again, he did something to us. He is remaking us. We were spiritually dead, and, and we're told that through his resurrection, we are made alive again. The Spirit is now at work. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, there is new life power within you, teaching you to trust teaching you to love. Scripture speaks in different ways about how we are now brought into the family of God. We are adopted. We are born again. We are learning what it means that now God is our Father. And the Bible says one day that process that is taking place in right now will be made complete. One day we will love without a hint of selfishness or fear. We will trust and know God completely we will be beautiful, and the way that Scripture speaks of it is we will be revealed as the glorious sons and daughters of God. And when that happens, we will finally take the place that we were always meant to have. When that happens, we will finally have the care for creation, the love for creation that Adam and Eve were given. And as that happens, through us being renewed, the world itself will be redeemed. And what that means is that even as we look rightly at this world and as we grieve, if we are looking honestly at it and seeing what is happening to it, we don't have to despair because our sin does not have the final word, God and his love will have the final word. 
Our our failure is not the conclusive final thing. Jesus' work is the conclusive and final thing. All that has been lost through sin will be redeemed and brought back and made new through Jesus. We can look at this world and know one day what we have broken through Jesus will be made whole. So when we look at creation, we see this this glorious gift, something that God loves and He's entrusted to us, we see our tremendous failure, but also we see with hope a world that is being redeemed, that we one day will be tasked with caring for and enjoying and doing all that we are always meant to do. So what does that mean for us right now? We've kind of like painted a picture, told a story, but, but right now we're not in that time where everything is fully redeemed. How are we supposed to be? Well, on one hand, I think this vision, when we understand it rightly, calls us to a realism. Until Jesus returns, the problems that we're seeing about how the world is treated are not going to be solved. I'm not saying that we shouldn't seek through policies to do things differently, but we're never going to be treating the heart of the issue because the heart of the issue is that as long as we don't see this world in context of God, we will not recognize that it is sacred. We will not recognize that it is a gift and treated appropriately, not as humanity. There will always be ways that it is exploited and used for power or for wealth rather than cared for. And yet, even though there's that realism of recognizing that the deeper problem needs to be addressed, and until it is, things will not be made right, that doesn't mean that that calls us to inaction. If we understand this story, it actually calls us to act. Because though you and I cannot repair this creation, not until Jesus returns is that going to be the case. We need to recognize that the Holy Spirit is at work right now repairing our relationship to this world. And as He's repairing our relationship, we can begin to learn how to love and care for this world in the way that we were always meant to. And I would suggest to you that that's actually what we see when we see these different little instructions that kind of are scattered throughout Deuteronomy, that that as God is inviting His people into His land, He's also telling them, this is the way. This is the way to relate to this land. Don't relate to your land like every other nation does. I want you to understand how to relate to it rightly. And if we see these instructions, we see God calling His people to a relationship with creation that is both of love and of limits. So of love... We can see that the fourth one down, Deuteronomy 25, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. This is a really simple instruction. Ox would pull these sledges as they walk around in a circle over grain, and by doing so, they're threshing the grain, allowing the kind of the food to kind of emerge from the rest. And you could be efficient. You could muzzle it to make sure that an ox doesn't eat at the time. That doesn't mean that the ox won't eventually be able to leave. You can give it food later on. But there's There's an aspect of kindness here where you're recognizing this ox is not just a machine. It's not just a tool. It's a living creature. And a living creature that is spending its energy serving you, you should allow it to be able to eat, to make sure that it can have the energy it needs. You should treat it humanely. Later on in Proverbs, it says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. There is a kind of honoring of life, a respect, I would say, a love 
for this creation that God is calling His people to. To return to the in the illustration of the pet, those of us who have pets kind of understand this, right? We, we recognize that as we come to know a creature, as we come to invest in its care, we care for it. And, and we are meant to have a similar relationship to the world around us, to see its beauty, to notice it, and to You need to know this world. You need to know this creation. And so let me just ask you to think about this. If, 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 as we are seeking to repair or allow God to repair our relationship to this world, knowing that the Holy Spirit in some ways is, is preparing us for all eternity, we will be caring for this creation. What are ways that we can be more attentive to the world around us? Our attention to our animals, to our pets, teaches us to love how can we be attentive? Does it mean maybe being outside more? Does it mean maybe for our parents, for those of you who are parents, encouraging your kids not just to be in nicely manicured soccer fields or in classrooms, but experience the wildness of the forest and seeing the trees? Maybe it involves knowing the names of the plants. How can we pay more attention so that we might love the world around us? Well, secondly, not only do we see an instruction to, to love, but I think what flows from this instruction to love, we also see a calling to limits. We have, we have two different instructions, you might notice. One relates to trees, and the other one relates to birds. But more specifically, they're relating to two times of survival, warfare and hunger. And when humanity needs to survive, they're often inclined to do whatever it takes. But notice what God says. No, you need to observe limits. If you are surrounding a city and you're wanting to chop down trees, you may not chop them all. They're not your enemy. They're not human beings. Leave all fruit-bearing trees. Observe limits. If you're hungry and in the forest and you find a forest with, and you find a, a nest with a bird and it's young, you may take the young, but don't take the mother. We know you're hungry, but you need to observe limits. The limits here, in part, I think, are related to conservation, allowing life to continue, but it's also just a recognition that as creatures, for us to live in harmony with this world, we need to not just see ourselves as consumers that can use, but as partners that seek to work alongside. Wendell Berry has a quote that I think is apt here. He says, we've lived by the assumption that what was good for us would be good for the world. We've been wrong. We must change our lives so that it will be possible to live by the contrary assumption that what is good for the world will be good for us. And that requires that we make the efforts to know the world and to learn what is good for it. We must learn to cooperate in its processes and to yield to its limits. But even more important, we must learn to acknowledge that the creation is full of mystery. We will never entirely understand it. We must abandon arrogance and stand in awe. We must recover the sense of the majesty of creation and the ability to be worshipful in its presence. Do you hear what he's saying? As we, as we see this world rightly, not as just stuff, 
but as the sacred creation of God that he loves. And as we stand in awe of our maker and of the world he made, then as we come to know it, we learn also that it's not just something to consume. It's something where we even might limit our own actions out of care for the world around us. And let me just ask you to be curious, even as the weeks progress. The reality is, and this is the challenge that we always have whenever thinking about this, we cannot do everything that needs to be done. There are so many ways that our, our, our culture is set up in such a way that is not observing the limits that we are meant to have as we love this world. But rather than being all or nothing, let me encourage you even in this week or in the next week to be looking what are ways that in small things you can limit yourself out of love for creation, knowing that this is part of what your calling is, is those who love God and the world that he has given. If you think about it, in, in, this, in this vision of creation that we're given, we see a picture of the gospel. Because we see the glorious love of God in giving us this world. We see the reality of our sin writ large as we just look at the world and what has been done to it. And yet we see the faithfulness of Jesus in his redemption of this world as he makes all things new. And so even as we think about it in creation, let's even move beyond that to recognize that we have a God who loves us and forgives us and redeems us. And let us even now use this as a time to turn to him in prayer and, and, and when appropriate confession. What I'll, I'll do right now is I'm going to lead us in a time of confession that will first be kind of a prayer that's read. And then subsequently we will um, we'll have a time of silent prayer.